0: cool thing to hear that many voices uh, singing together. So thank you all for being here today. Um, thanks for coming out. And if you're watching online, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is David. I'm actually on staff here at Severn, and I get uh, the privilege of continuing our series called Equipped. Uh, this is week two of our Equipped series, if, if you're just joining us f- uh, for the first time today. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor Ryan kicked it off talking about the topic of of meditation and and he he kind of talked about meditating on scripture and really this whole point of this series is uh, to really kind of think through how do we work out our faith in every area of our lives so that it actually changes our lives and uh, Pastor Ryan mentioned this last week I think it's important to remember anytime we talk about spiritual disciplines uh, that This isn't what you do to become saved or to be a Christian. Uh, This is what you do if you want to continue to grow as someone who has already been saved by faith in Jesus and by grace through faith in Jesus. That's how you become a Christian. What we're talking about here is how you grow. So so again, last week, Pastor Ryan talked about meditating on Scripture. Today, we're going to talk about application or applying Scripture, applying the Bible to our lives. And Uh, In any culture, uh, Christianity is going to have certain um, aspects to it that are kind of appealing uh, to that culture, and it's going to have other sides of it that aren't as appealing. Um, So meditation sounds pretty cool nowadays whenever you're looking at things like uh, where a society likes to drink wheatgrass smoothies and eat non-GMO meat and be spiritual and do yoga. Uh, So what Pastor Ryan talked about last week, the idea of meditation can kind of sound cool on the surface. But application, what I get to talk about today, uh, not super appealing, because it's basically the spiritual discipline of obedience. And um, I think that if you look at, you know, just who we are as a culture, we really like freedom and independence and autonomy. So how do you guys feel about talking about something today that you don't want to hear? How How's that sound? really i'm I'm assuming people online are clapping very loudly as you know they're like yeah because but um so that's what we're going to talk about today and my goal today is to to really just kind of look at two questions the first one is why should i apply the scriptures to my life or why should we apply the bible to our life Um, and then the second thing will be how do we do that Uh, so we're going to start with why and and to do that we're actually just going to be in a passage out of psalm 119 Uh, We're going to be in verses uh, 33 through 38. Uh, So it's two of the sections in Psalm 119. I'm going to read that and we'll we'll just kind of go through it. So this is verse 33 of Psalm 119. It says, Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to material gain. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. And give me life in your ways. Confirm what you, what you said to your servant for produces reverence for you. Turn away the disgrace I dread. Indeed, your judgments are good. How I long for your precepts. Give me life through your righteousness. Let your faithful love come to me, Lord, your salvation as you promised. Then I can answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take the word of truth from my mouth, for I hope in your judgments. I will always obey your instruction forever and ever. I will walk freely in an open place because I seek your precepts. I will speak of your decrees before kings and not be ashamed. I delight in your commands, which I love. I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and will meditate on your statutes. So the first thing we're going to look at is why should we apply God's word to our life? And we have two ideas under that and then a few ways how. And um, Psalm 119 that we just read out of, it's actually the longest chapter in the Bible, if you're not aware. It's actually like 176 verses, so it's not even close. So if your friend ever challenges you to memorize a chapter of Scripture, don't pick that one. Um, But we read two sections of it today. It's actually uh, divided up. It's an acrostic poem. So each section starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you've ever read Psalm 119 or even just in the section we just read, you get a really clear picture of how much this guy, this psalmist or this author, how much he really just loves God's commands and loves God's laws in a way that really, I don't think any of us really feel as strongly as maybe this guy puts into words how he feels about God's commands. Um, So you might be left wondering, like, why does this weirdo love the law of God so much? Like, what does he know that we don't? Um, And I think there's two things, two things that he understands that you can kind of see in this passage that really give him a convincing reason why. He has this love and this desire to follow after God, to follow His commands, look, and to understand what He's saying, understand His instruction. And I think if we understand these things, uh, can help us as a starting point. Because um, I think some, I wouldn't assume that everyone here is like I, I already understand why I should do this. Um, so maybe you're in that boat. You don't really think you should do it, or maybe you just need a, a refresher. It's become kind of routine applying God's word to your life, or you just kind of got stuck in the motion. So this is why we're going to start with why and uh he understands something about god and something about freedom so we're going to start uh, with our first main idea today for why we should apply god's word to our lives is that god is better than you think and uh i, I actually was thinking about this statement that's true for 100 percent of people so if you have a low view of god he's better than that and if you have an extremely high view of god he's even better than that and, uh, and I think it's so important to start here, because um, you know, the, the way you view the giver of a command is going to completely determine whether or not you even consider doing what was said. Um, just to illustrate this with a very simple life example, so when, when my wife Shana shoots me a text and says, hey, can you pick up our Walmart grocery pickup, which we normally shop at Aldi, so shout out to Aldi, but, um, but Walmart pickup, we do that occasionally, especially you know, with kids, sometimes it's easier. So when she sends me a text and it says, hey, can you pick up our Walmart grocery pickup, and here's the link, I respond to that text differently than I respond to the text I get from UPS every couple days that says your parcel needs to be claimed in the next three days. Click here. You know, I, I don't know if you guys get those, but they're a scam. Don't click the link. Um, and the reason is because I, I know my wife. I trust my wife. I like groceries. Those are all good things. So I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, there'd be no reason for her to send me to Walmart for no reason. She'd just be tricking me. Like She's not going to do that. However, if you use the word parcel in a text with me, I already automatically assume you're a robot and that you want to steal my identity. So all that to say, the giver of the command completely changes the way that you're going to view the command. So that's why we have to start here. And when we look through this passage, just these 16 verses, you get a pretty clear understanding of what this author, how he views God. So these are all kind of either implied or, or said directly. He knows that God is good, righteous, full of faithful love, a savior trustworthy true and just and that's just in 16 verses where he that's how this guy views god so because he views god that way and he knows all this about god it kind of makes sense that he would have this desire to be like hey you're the spiritual authority in my life because he understands that he knows that to be true about god so the reality is every single one of us have a spiritual authority in our lives outside of ourselves and that's regardless of your belief system and even as a Christian, we can have other spiritual authorities that, that vie for that place of ultimate authority in our life, where we'll apply their law to our life instead of God's. Um, and you even see this in the psalmist, which is pretty cool. Like He sounds like this unhuman person who just loves God's laws. But in this psalm, in verse 36 and 37, he says, Turn my heart to your decrees, and not to material gain. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless and give me life in your way. So even this guy is having these other things pull on them, you know, material gain and and things that are worthless, where that term is often used to describe idols, you know, just anything else that could take the place of God in our life. And the unsettling thing about this, it means that no matter how badly we want to be and how much we think we are, we actually cannot be our own spiritual authority. It's either going to be God or it's going to be something else. And just to kind of, you know, illustrate this, uh, we can use the example of, you know, uh, material gain. Um, material gain that he, he actually lists in this psalm. So, you know, you may not state it as your goal, but I think um, if, if we reflect on our lives, and the reason that I think this is mentioned here is because it's such a common one, you know, if, you're, if you find your daily life being focused around making more money or getting the next house or upgrading your house or just having a certain lifestyle or certain things or, you know, security, money in the bank, then while you might feel like you're calling the shots, your spiritual authority is actually wealth because you're making the most important decisions in your life by applying the law of material gain to your life, or the the law of the bottom line, or the law of the American dream, whatever you want to call it, because you're going to think through, okay, where are we going to live? Where am I going to work? How much time am I going to spend with my family? Those decisions are like the biggest decisions you can make, and we make them by applying the law of material gain to our life instead of the law of God. But maybe money's not your thing. Uh, One other example of this, it could look a lot of different ways, but one other example would be the idea of public opinion. You know, maybe you have this never-ending desire to, to be thought well of, or for people to like you. And if that's the case, you are actually just gonna make your life decisions based on the law of public opinion. You're gonna apply that law to your life. You know, how will how this be perceived? What do other people think is good? And the, the real problem, maybe one of the real problems with this, is that um, neither of these things or any of these things that we can chase after, they're not gonna satisfy us if we, you know, do the law perfectly, but, but even beyond that, they can never forgive us. They don't have the power to forgive us when we fail. So if you start doing poorly, according to the law of material gain, uh, you're just going to worry more and more and more about money and you're just going to be filled with anxiety. But all of these laws will just leave us with, with anxiety because you're just going to worry about it. Same with uh, if you follow the law of public opinion, and that's how you live your life. Like I don't know how you wouldn't be constantly anxious nowadays. Public opinion changes like that, and it's the most unforgiving thing maybe ever. <laughs> like There's actually teenagers who have enough anxiety to talk to their doctor about it, um, and it's just surrounding the fact that they might you know, there's a chance that they might get canceled. That's like what these kids are nervous about. And not because they actually hold any kind of extremist views. It's just because they're afraid they might accidentally say something wrong on social media or be misunderstood and get canceled. There's there's like anxiety is all that you get whenever you actually have any other spiritual law applied to your life. And Pastor Tim Keller said it best, I think. He said, if you aren't under the authority of the Lord who can forgive you, then you're under the authority of a Lord that can't those are your only two options. And you might need some convincing about that, but I believe that to be 100% true. I think if you just even examine your own life, that is the case that we see over and over again in our lives is where we can be deceived into thinking we're our own authority, but really, it's just something else. It's something else that's not as good as God. So regardless of what you believe, your belief system, we all have a spiritual authority outside ourselves, but God is the only good one. And maybe you're wondering, hey, it's nice that you can say God is good. It's nice that this psalmist knew that. How do I know that? You know, how can we know that God is really this great? All these things this guy listed um, and, and maybe what other Christians have said before, how do you really know that? And I think it's interesting to, um, to just kind of point out that in 2021, so today, me and you, we actually have a clearer revelation of who God is than this psalmist would have had when he wrote this because the Bible would describe Jesus as the image of God, the perfect image of the invisible God. He's the representation of God's nature so we can look at Jesus So if you're listening today and you're not convinced that that's a good reason why, like, I don't really think God is good, I would just recommend spend your time looking at Jesus. Like, start there. Because if you're listening today, I'm assuming you're at least interested in some regard. So look at Jesus, because in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15, it says, "...for Christ's love compels us since we've reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves." but for the one who died for them and was raised. So what that's saying there is God's love is the primary motivator. Behind obedience. It's saying it's Christ's love that compels us. Some translations say it's Christ's love controls us. That's what drives us. It's not fear, it's not guilt. I think it's so important in a teaching like this, because we're going to get into to how to do this. If you start feeling like I'm trying to guilt you at any point, I think guilt's a terrible motivator. I think love is what motivates us. It's Christ's love that motivates us to not live for ourselves, but to live for him, for the one who died and was raised again. And, you know, and you see God's love most clearly demonstrated in Jesus. We're told that he demonstrated his love through Jesus on the cross, willing to give His life for us. So the reason why we should, the first reason why we should apply God's word to our life is that God's better than you think. The second reason why we should apply God's word to our lives is because freedom is different than you think. So again, I mentioned this kind of in the intro. Probably one of the main reasons that the idea of obedience or or a scriptural application, you know, submitting to the authority of the Bible, whatever you want to call it, the reason that's really unappealing to us is because. We like autonomy. You know, we like to be free. We like independence. Um, But we read in verse 45 uh, something that's a little bit interesting, I think. So again, this is still Psalm 119. In verse 45, he read, I will walk freely in an open place because I seek your precepts. So what we see here, you know, we so often think of freedom as like the absence of restrictions. Um, Like that's how we'll kind of, uh, the idea that might jump in your head when you think of freedom. But what we see here is interesting because he's saying He's found freedom because of God's rules, because he's submitted to God's authority and His commands. He's actually found real freedom. You know, it sounds really backwards to us, but but I would actually I would actually argue that you you understand this and we understand this pretty well in like the physical world. I think we have a harder time when it's like a spiritual authority type thing. But um, for example, um, we understand that you could have a diet with no restrictions if you wanted to. You could make the decision as an adult. I'm going to eat whatever I want. But if you chose to eat donuts for every single meal, or honey buns, me and my brothers were talking the other day about how terrible honey buns are for you, but how good they are, like how delicious they are. So if you ate honey buns for every single meal, um, because, hey, no restrictions, I want to be free, what's going to happen is very quickly, you're going to be enslaved to your physical body deteriorating. Because you're designed, your body, we understand this, we're designed for certain nutrients to keep us healthy to be able to be, have a, you know, the freedom of health and be able to move about and do what we want. But if all you eat honey buns and say, no restrictions, I'm free, you actually end up being enslaved to that. Because the, the idea here is that freedom's not found in the absence of all restrictions. It's actually found in, in following the right ones. And we can see this other areas. Like you can think of a fish, you know, like fish in the water. They can swim, they look beautiful, they look happy. But if you were like, that poor fish, he's restricted to water. <laughs> and you scooped him out on the ground, like what's going to happen to that fish? Like he's not going to be okay because you'd be going against the design of that fish. And again, freedom's not the absence of all restriction, it's following the right ones. And in the same way, when, when God gives us something in his word that he says, Hey, this is a command or this is what you should do, he's not just arbitrarily telling us some rules that he thinks are cool. He's actually revealing our design to us. You know, he's the designer, and he's saying, so for example, if he says, Hey, forgive one another. He's not just saying that because he likes the idea of forgiveness, or he had like a rule sheet and there was a blank spot, and he's like, I don't know, forgive, let's put forgive there, you know. He's telling us that because he knows if we don't forgive one another, we're going to destroy ourselves, we're going to destroy our relationships, and our our societies are going to fall apart. He knows that that's how we're designed because he made us. So that's the idea here, And and whenever we live through our version of freedom, which is no restrictions, or what we think is no restrictions, we just end up again with anxiety and self-centeredness and broken relationships because we're just reaping the results of going against our design. So he's not just some dictator saying, these are what the rules are. He's showing you, I made you. This is how you have real freedom. He's calling us you know, into real life, into joy. And he's saying, hey, think of marriage this way. You know, Think of yourself this way. Think of other people this way. And what's crazy is when we refuse to do that as a follower of Jesus or even as someone who isn't, when we refuse to do that, we're saying, we're saying, no, God, no, I think freedom's this way. I'm gonna, And what it ends up being is, I'm going to listen to this spiritual authority over you. I think they know better. They know where freedom is. And then we're, we're just rejecting the designer saying, I understand better how you made me. <clears throat> so those are the two reasons I wanted to start with for why. There's obviously, you could talk about that stuff way longer, um, you know, because God is better than you think and freedom is different than you think. Those are kind of two reasons why I wanted to look at and I'm going to have a few, a few points. I actually have five main points today. I've never had more than three. So, so I have three ideas on how we can do this. So, um, so how do we actually apply this, God's word to our life if we think, okay, maybe I should do it. How do we do it? And uh, the first thing we need to do, is number one for the, the how list, is get in the arena. So all through this passage, we see this psalmist saying things like this in regards to God's law. It's kind of intimidating. He says, I will keep them. I will obey and follow with all my heart. I will always obey. I will speak of your decrees before kings and not be ashamed. So here we see this guy who you know he 's not being timid <laughs> you know he 's not he 's not kind of holding back he's he 's completely engaged he 's decided i 'm going to be engaged in doing what God calls me to do and i 'm going I need help like you see him asking for help there. it 's like but i 'm going to be committed to that. you know he 's not sitting on the sidelines he 's engaged he 's in the arena, excuse me, and I read something. Uh, This past week was pretty interesting, maybe sad. I'm not sure how you describe it, but um, it was Barna Research. They do a lot of research around, like, the state of the church. And it was a pretty recent one, and they said that the the stats came out to about two-thirds of people who identify as Christian in America um, qualify under non-practicing. Not really sure what that means. So, like, one-third of people who say they believe this life-changing thing only one third have actually had their life changed by it, or it's actually something where they practice what they preach. And and to kind of give this more maybe a realistic view of this stat, like I think stats only tell you so much. I think there's a lot that plays into that number. For example, you know, we still have cultural Christianity to a degree in our in our country. So you have some people who would on a test say, I identify as Christian, but that's just because they were born into it. You know, it's like this is my family's belief, or I live in the South, so that's what, I'm a Christian, or I'm, you know, Republican, so I'm a Christian. They just put that down for that. But then for the rest of the test, they're not going to answer in any way that would qualify them as practicing. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think another part of it is just the consumeristic culture we live in. I think we live in a culture that we enjoy, we've gotten used to watching other people do things instead of doing them ourselves. Um, case in point, no, no shame if you do this with your kids, but kids watch other kids play with toys, <laughs> and like, like, like at least play with a toy yourself, you know? But like, but that's just the that's the consumeristic culture that we live in, where that's kind of normalized. So I think that plays into it. And this isn't an, an exhaustive list, um, but also just so you understand, I'm not trying to guilt you with this uh, self-reflection question I'm going to ask next. I think a big part of this is church leadership. I think when you see something in a culture or in a whether it's a church culture or a country, it comes, you know, top down. And the, the Bible would say that church leaders, people on staff, people who work at a church—like, kind of how that would qualify nowadays—one of their primary roles is equipping believers to get off the sidelines, to get in the arena, to be engaged. So, so I think there's responsibility here too, like with me. So, so I don't think I uh, don't want you to feel like I'm guilting the people sitting in the in the in the chairs today or watching online. Um, but I have a question for you. I wanted to ask. So, i <clears> will <throat> do like a thought experiment. Uh, think of the last time that you raised a concern about a church you were a part of. And I'll caveat this as well. I think there are valid concerns, and they should be talked about, really at every church, because we're made of people. You know, it's just people are not going to be perfect, so there will always be concerns. But whether it was here or somewhere else, uh, not just a church you were visiting, but a church that you would call, like, this is my home church. So think about that, last time you raised a concern, and think through how you phrased your concern. Did you say, they need to do this or that, or they don't do this enough? Or did you say, we need to do this? or that, or we don't do this enough. So to kind of clarify this, and again, I'm not trying to guilt you, I wanna make sure that's very clear, this is a, a thought experiment to help us think through where we're really at, where we're really at with this as far as being in the arena. So I think sports can be a useful analogy here. So think of a football team. When the team is doing well, fans will say things like, we're looking good, we're gonna win it all this year. And I actually had a friend at Nationwide when I worked there who would call you out on a dime if you said we. He's like, oh, when did the Ravens sign you? You know, when did you you get on the team? And, like, I wouldn't even notice it. This guy was like a hawk. But anyways, fans will say that when things are going well. But when things change and start going downhill like they normally do for almost every team in the league, they will start saying things like this. Man, they are terrible. Like, they need to get their act together. What are they doing, you know? So fan language can change depending on circumstance, how things are going. However, if you talk to the players or you hear the players talk, when things are going well, they're like, hey, we're doing good. We've got to keep it up. You know, keep up the momentum. We're doing great. But when things are going bad, it's we need to make some adjustments. You know, we, we've got to figure this out. We've got some work to do. So for the people on the field, it's always we. They have ownership over it. So, so the question for us is, you know, in your walk as a Christian, are you a fan or are you on the field? And I ask that not just because, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get people to do church programs. I just think being a part of a local church is kind of what it, you can't get away from that if you're looking at being a practicing Christian. That was one of the criteria, actually, that Barna Research had. So James 1.22 actually says, uh, says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, I, th- I mean, that, that last part there, deceiving yourselves, I think it's really easy for all of us to trick ourselves into to thinking, you know, we're doing great, but we're just hearing a lot. We're not doing anything. And that's really the, the question there. So this isn't some plug to, to get you all to do church programs. Uh, James 1.22 is a command from God to engage in doing what God's word says, whether it's a church program or not. And uh, there's a quote by Theodore Roosevelt that I really like. He wasn't talking about the church, but, uh, but it really applies to this idea, this kind of this engaging the will, being deci- like having this mindset of being engaged. So um, he, said, he said this. He said, It is not the critic who counts not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who really, who actually does strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who with the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who with the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I don't know if he wrote that himself or not, but I think it's a really cool quote. And really the, the thrust of what I'm saying today as far as, you know, get in the arena is just don't be a cold and timid soul, you know. The first thing we need to do when considering how do we apply this to our lives is actually engage our world to say, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to be a doer, not just a hearer. Because if we don't have that engagement of our will in this, like, your excuses are going to win out every single time. And believe me, I know. Like, I have so many excuses that are great excuses. Like, I could convince myself not to do a lot of stuff really quick. So, like, if you don't have your will engaged, like, no, 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 I'm going to do what this says. I'm going to be a doer, not just a hearer. Then that's, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure at the beginning if we don't have that already in our minds. And just the idea, too, that you're going to fail. Like, we're all going to fail. That's part of it. But it's just the idea that I'm going to be a doer, not a hearer. So get in the arena. That's the first idea. Second idea of how we do this when we're considering how to do this is to check your understanding. So in verses uh, 33 and 34, the very first two verses we read today, the psalmist said, Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. So the reason this is so important is because um, sincerity really isn't enough in and of itself. Like, you don't have to look a whole lot further than church history or even modern-day churches and uh, modern-day lives to see that you can do a lot of things with a whole lot of sincerity that are really bad things. <laughs> so that's why we have to check our understanding. And getting in the arena, once you're in the arena, you're going to realize, okay, I'm going to do what this says, and then you, you start to try to dig into what that is. You realize it's not as simple or as easy as you may have imagined on the front end. For example, whenever you look at God's word, there's some things in it that are descriptive, meaning they're describing what happened or how things used to be. And there's other things that are prescriptive. They're saying you should live this way. If you don't know the difference between those two, and if you get them mixed up, you can do a lot of things you never should have done, and you cannot be doing a lot of things you should be doing. So it's not as easy or as simple as we would like to think it might be. Like, just do what it says. Like, you're not supposed to do everything that's in here. Some of it's really bad. So that's all that's all the point there is you have to check your understanding and it takes humility you know you have this has to be a constantly a constant thing that we're always doing as we're in the arena because you know once you're in the arena you have to be there first because if you wait till you understand everything you're never going to move but if you're always moving and you never check your understanding to make sure you're actually going in the right direction you're just going to go further and further off the rails so it's both and i think Like, don't fall into this false dichotomy that we can so often create in the church of, you know, it's either Bible study or people who actually do things. You know, like, it's a false dichotomy. We created that. Because if you really believe and you actually care about what this book says, uh, it's going to move you to action. Like, if you're someone who's all about Bible study, like, you have to do what it actually says. Study James 1.22. You know, it says be a doer. But if you really care about helping people and being active and, and being on mission, then you're going to need to check this book to see how to do that. Even the command is simple as love your neighbor. Like, what is love? You ask ten people on the street, you'll get ten different answers. This book can tell you what love is and what it actually looks like. So we have to constantly be doing that, constantly checking our understanding and being a humble, informed doer. Um, so checking your understanding can take a lot of different forms. In, the, in this psalm, we actually see he's praying. You know, he's asking God for understanding. He's seeking God's precepts. That would be like reading the Bible. And he's also meditating, which we talked about last week. So it's cool you see all three of those in that little section. Uh, but one thing that's not mentioned that I think is, is vital to bring up, because it's not explicitly mentioned in the psalm, um, but psalms, were a, they were always read and sang corporately. It was always in a group of people. It was always with community. And that's, that's the po- one thing I want to point out, is that one thing vital to checking your understanding is other believers who are in the, in, on the field, in the arena with you, who can challenge you and hold you accountable and encourage you and give you ideas about, like, how how do you love your neighbor? Like, what do you do? They can also give you lots of opportunities, because there's bear with one another, forgive one another, those kinds of commands. Those are really easy to get opportunities for if you start hanging out with other people. You know, like, I'm going to have to bear with some people. (laughs) So always having other people in your life who you can say, hey, man, like, can you check my understanding on this? Can you you come into my life and maybe even tell me this is the direction I want to go? Do you think that's a good idea? And actually, not asking just to get a compliment or, like, fake affirmation, But to actually say i might actually change my decision based on what you tell me like that sounds so weird to me like i don't normally do that but that that's what the bible would call wisdom you know like bringing other people in but we'll so quickly individualize this process of checking our understanding we'll be be like i don't understand this i'm gonna go in my room close the door lock the door read a little bit come back out and tell people what i've learned and that's good to do self bible study but if you don't first ask your friends hey i think i've learned this what do you think you could start believing some crazy things like we can come up with crazy ideas when we isolate so checking your understanding lots of ways you can do it community is a vital part of it and um i have one more idea for how but before i get to that i want to share just like a very practical tool for you guys you know pastor ryan last week said the goal of this series is to take the spiritual disciplines off the shelf and uh, put them in your hands i thought about making a a height joke there but i'm not going to i'm not going to say anything about height at all (laughs) um so Basically, taking it off the shelf, putting it in your hands with, a, with a, a, series, a sermon about application, you know. I was thinking through, like, how do you do that? You know, and I wanted to get behind the why should we apply the word, how do we do that, some mindsets. Um, but I have one thing for you. I actually have a slide for it. It's just a question that uh, you could ask yourself once a week. Uh, you could ask yourself once a month. Um, you could set a reminder on your phone for this just to go off. So it's like a very practical, like, you can take a picture of the screen. Like, I'll pause for that to happen. You can write it down in your notebook. Um, I didn't come up with it, so, like, an older, smarter person did, in case you're wondering, like, he's so young. How, like, he can't give me a question to ask myself. Like, I stole this from an older guy. So, um, <clears throat> so this is what I have. So this is ju- the question that you can ask yourself regularly to, to really put this into practice. Very simple. It's what has God's word told you to do that you aren't doing yet? Pretty simple question. If you want to take a picture of that, write it down. I think it's worth doing since we're talking about a sermon about applying God's word to our life, but what has God's word told you to do that you aren't doing yet? And I think that can hit you a couple different ways. You could be like, it hasn't told me anything because I'm not reading it. You know, that's there you go. There's, there's your first step. But maybe, maybe you're, you're. I think a lot of our crowd has been in church for a long time. Like a lot of people here today, I know personally, and I know you've been in church for a long time, you can have a laundry list of things where you've just become used to hearing and not doing. I think that's a danger we can fall into, where we can just become accustomed to hearing something on sunday morning and being like that was really nice and never doing anything or reading something out of the bible thing that sounds really good but never there's never that next step so this question even if it just hits you once a week once a month what is god's word told you to do that you aren't doing it i think that's the tool for your tool belt that i'd like to give you today in our spiritual disciplines series called equipped so this is your question that you can ask and um I'm almost done here. I just wanted to to say, you know, maybe you hear this and you're like, I never really, I like to learn. I'm more of a learner, not really a doer. Um, Being a doer actually makes you a better learner. Um, For example, you know, adults learn on a need-to-know basis. So, again, using the example of the the command to love your neighbor, if you decide you want to do that, you're going to become way more interested and retain way more in here about what it says about what love is, how to love your neighbor, examples of it. You're also going to become much more interested in how your friends do that. You can say like, hey, I, uh, I want to love my neighbor, but I have this weird situation. How do you handle that situation? You know, so you can actually bring other people in on it. Um, and you'll also learn how hard that to, is to do. You'll learn how hard it is to love real people and actually like, love them in a way like the Bible would call us to. Um, but one thing you'll learn that I think is um, really important is you'll learn a lot about yourself. Um, C.S. Lewis actually has a quote that I love. I kind of wanted to use this in a, a sermon about you know, application of God's word. He says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. And I think that's such a helpful quote because it helps you realize like, this isn't dependent on our effort. You know. This, and uh, that's actually going to bring us to our last idea of how we can do this. And it's, uh, the, the last idea is to know your hope. And I'm going I'm to call up the worship team and, and we'll close down here in just a second. <clears throat> so in verses 40 and 41 of Psalm 119, we read this. <clears throat> the psalmist said, How I long for your precepts. Give me life through your righteousness. Let your faithful love come to me, Lord, your salvation as you promised. So here we see this psalmist who, you know, maybe in your mind you've already created this image of him where he's this like superhuman who loves God's rules and just wants to do them. But here we see him being very honest about really where his hope lies. He's saying he's dependent on God to give him life. He's dependent on God's righteousness. He's dependent on God's faithful love. He needs a savior. He's saying, God, you're my savior. I need salvation that you've promised. And what that shows us is that this guy's hope, even though he was so determined to do what God told him to do, and he loved God's law, his hope entirely rested on God. And that's where our hope has to be if we're going to do this, if we're going to actually try to apply God's word. Because the way that we know, again, all those things that he said, you know, that salvation that was promised, that's accomplished through Jesus. You know, we have to look back to Jesus as our hope. And it's not only that our like God's faithful love is most clearly demonstrated in that, most clearly demonstrated in Jesus on the cross, becoming sin for us so that we can be made righteous, and being rejected so that we could be accepted. And if if you don't recognize that that you're already accepted because of Jesus, you'll never be able to to apply God's word to your life in a way that's honest where you can actually be honest about your faults and your shortcomings, or that has any sort of hope in it because you're going to always feel, again, like when we follow any other law, we're going to feel anxious and we're going to feel like we don't measure up and wonder if we do. And if you start doing good, you're going to get prideful. So this is where we have to be focused on because there's no way that obeying God's commands becomes a delight unless you know that you're accepted and you cannot be condemned because of what Jesus has done. Otherwise, you'll always be afraid. You'll always be anxious. You'll always be worried. But if you know that there's no way you can be condemned, you're actually free. You're free to actually try your hardest to follow this. And you're free to follow it without fear of failure and without apathy towards success because we're driven by love. You know, we're, it's Christ's love that compels us. So you know, we actually have hope, we have freedom in this because we're not driven by guilt. We're not driven by fear. We're not driven by self-seeking, you know, just selfishness. We're actually driven by love, by trust in a good God who's even better than we think. And we're driven by a hope that's secure because we know that what Jesus did was enough. And out of love in response to his love is what leads to us applying this to our lives. That's all I got for you. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we uh, like this psalmist, we need your help. We need help understanding what your word says. We need help applying it to our lives. We need we need your help to even just have the motivation of love um, that, that we can that we can actually do this not just out of guilt or fear or shame and God we just pray that you would make your love more clear to us today uh, so that we're able to then operate out of a place of already being accepted not out of fear we know that fear is not coming from you and God we just pray that that we would be a people who are doers not just hearers and that you would help us to see where each and every one of us fall short there because we all do none of us have arrived or have perfected this and uh God, I pray that we would be a community of people who encourage one another and challenge one another and, and just like a team on a field are together in this making, making adjustments where we need to make adjustments and, and going full steam ahead where we need to go full steam ahead. God, we, just, uh, we pray this in your name. Amen.